bitch is bad and bullshit. Welcome to the Bad and Bitchy Podcast. I'm Erin. I'm Erica. And I'm Amy. You guys, guess what? What? This week we celebrated one year of Bad and Bitchy. Woo! We had a team dinner last night. <laughs> it was super fun. The best. Um, we went to a place in Ottawa called the Beachwood Gastropub. Um, and we chose to go there. We had a couple options at places we had wanted to go for various reasons. But we ended up choosing the Beachwood Gastropub because uh, they're women-owned, uh, they've got a woman chef, and they are taking the issue of sexual harassment in the hospitality industry very seriously. And how do we know this, Erin? Because <laughs> we helped co-organize um, a discussion, a workshop on sexual harassment in the hospitality industry in Ottawa, and they were represented. So I, I think we felt that it was important to support people who are taking this issue Seriously, and trying to take action on something. Basically, they showed up. Yeah. Yeah. And then we showed up for them. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Um, and then this weekend, another local business in Ottawa, who's also women-owned and also very feminist, is Little Joe Berries, and uh, they are celebrating their one-year anniversary at their vegan bakery, which is great. I love their treats. I love their Instagram. Oh, my God. I had, I had to unfollow their Instagram because it made me hungry all the time. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Their Instagram like it was is too awesome. Much. Yeah, it's yeah. really good. The pop yeah, tart, yeah, yeah. the vegan Pop-Tarts are so good. Yeah. They also have a lot of gluten-free everything. Yes. So it's pretty fabulous. So it's not, like, um, dry and No, it's, like, really good. Like, Bridgehead cookies is it or fuck richard uh no it's amazing it's legit because i swear like you that's the first time i tried like vegan baked goods and it ruined it they ruined it yeah they're me. not yeah. good at all um no little joe berries is like legit it's comparable you could do a blind taste test and like they pass with flying colors yeah cool yeah um so other than our potiversary what have how have you guys been this week I don't, I don't have anything sort of remarkable that happened. Mm-hmm. It's just, you know, it's just tr- keep trudging along kind of thing, right? Right. Mm-hmm. So um, I'm excited to develop a, new, a strategy for a new client I have. Ooh. So I'm going to do branding for a new client. And so I get to, like, basically develop her brand from the ground up on social media. Cool. Awesome. I was in Yellowknife for work and I saw the Northern Lights for the first time. Yeah, you showed us pictures. They were it was beautiful. really cool. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I took Friday off. It was very much deserved and very needed. Amazing. Yay. And we didn't go to work today. I didn't have to work today yeah. either. <laughs> Saturday. Um, yeah, and I went and got a facial. It was wonderful. Anyway, so uh, let's get into it, shall we? This week in feminism, we're starting with a kind of a... A li- on a light note, I think. Well, light-ish. Um, so the latest entrant into Toronto's ride-sharing scene has one particularly important distinction. Both the driver and the passenger have to be women. Drive Her, a ride-sharing platform exclusively run and used by women, 
launched this past week with over 100 female drivers already signed up to hit the road, according to the city's ever or adding to the city's ever-growing car-sharing industry, which already includes Uber, Lyft, InstaRide, FaceDrive, which I don't know what that is, and <laughs> Taxify, which also is a bad name. Uh, it just reminds me of taxes. Yeah, that's what I. That's how I heard it. Yeah, Taxify. Yeah, that's the name of it. Yeah, that's what, oh no, that's the name gosh. of another one. This is Drive Her. I know, but yeah. Taxify. It sounds like a tax preparation software. It does. Yeah, sure. That's awful. Yep. Anyway, Drive Her touts itself as an alternative for women who may otherwise feel uncomfortable or unsafe to ride in male-driven vehicles. Users of Drive Her will have a range of access to services through the app, including pre-scheduled options, Mm. safety tips, and built-in emergency buttons in case they need immediate assistance while in the car. Founder Aisha Addo, who is also the founder of the Power to Girls Foundation, said Drive Her is both about safety and the empowerment of women. In a male-dominated industry like taxi driving, incidents of sexual harassment, prying personal questions, or lewd comments have been reported Mm. in Toronto and across the rest of Canada. So this is pretty cool. Yeah, I think it's really rad. Yeah. Uh, I really like that it was founded by a black woman, too. mm -hmm. I I had to say that. No, that's fair. Absolutely. (laughs) No, it's, 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 well, Toronto's had its problems with um, sexual harassment and sexual assault in the taxi industry. Um, I think in the late, I want to say in the last 20 years, like in the 2000s, you really saw a rise in it. And um, where there were, I remember there were, there were news articles after news articles talking about it. And many women getting assaulted or getting harassed or something like that. And so I think this is a step forward. Um, yeah. Yeah, I was, I was just going to say just because um, Lyft just launched in Ottawa this past week. and uh, It did? Yeah. Yay! And I referred to Uber on uh, News 1310 yesterday as morally bankrupt. I mean, probably. <laughs> I'd be curious to know what, and I'm sure... They've turned their mind and attention to this, but like what uh, drive her is how they're compensating and supporting their drivers. Yeah. Um, because I think that's really important when we talk about these um, sharing economy type businesses that they sort of trade on this idea that they're being innovative and in exchange for it, you actually lose in protections for workers. So um, I hope that that's not the case here. Um, but it's costly to start up any business, so I don't know if from the get-go they actually will have compensation as they ought, like the proper compensation for these women. I think they found out that Uber drivers ultimately make like $3 an hour, yeah, like at, like in comparing wages. And, so tr- and that's more specifically in Canada just because there isn't the population and the interest like in the States. Yeah, but not- I mean like that that's a job that was like at least an income supplement that people have and they see it as immediate money and so they don't really think about what they're actually losing out on and you can do any other job and get way more than three dollars an hour um but you lose the independence and i guess people are trading on that and it's kind of it's pretty abysmal if you ask i was i was just going to say that everybody's trading off time and the flexibility of time uh that's what uber is selling you it's selling you 
not only it's not it's, yeah it's selling you sort of like a taxi service but what it's selling you is your flexible is the flexibility yeah of time. As, yeah as a driver but I, I don't think people are making that decision as informed as how, they ought to be however yeah. that's on the consumer sorry that's yeah. on the consumer side on the um labor side what it's selling drivers is again the flexibility of time um and sort of like the ability to make um, more immediate trade-offs on that time. So, for example, if you're at a taxi service and you drive a shift, um, maybe you have a regular shift every day, but maybe that's during um, hours where you have to pick up your kids, for example. So what they're selling you is, 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 is sort of, are selling the labor or what's so attractive is that flexibility of time and that ability to sort of, of customize your own no, schedule. No, I, I, sure. I get that. That's what I was saying. But my issue with that is like even like as a taxi driver, whether you're working shift or not, first of all, that's either your, that's typically your primary job. You don't have to have three jobs. The fact that we have an economy where you need to have side hustles is bullshit. Um, and you're unionized if you work for a tax company. And so you have a rate of pay that's higher than minimum wage and some other benefits that you're opting into. You get none of that with Uber. And in fact, you're making less than minimum wage, um, yeah, which so I think is it's really like we don't allow people to contract out their rights and say, I will earn less. I will, uh, you know, that's why internships are illegal. You can't say, I'll, I'll work for no money. We don't allow that. And for some reason, we've like, let this go on. Yeah, I think it's more of a, a question of, okay, so, you know, Adu, who the founder says that the point is to empower women, but if you're not paying them any sort of meaningful yeah. wage, then are you really empowering them? Well, I, I hope that that comes to that. I'm, we're, we're just speculating. Sure. But I think that's a big part of it because um, surely a lot of people will want to take part as drivers because it's a form of income and it does have these other appeals to it, but that's not um, necessarily a step forward unless it comes with better compensation. So is your, um, is your issue more with the rate? No, it's what people or get. Is it, it's their cut. Or is it, so it's, 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 it's the financial part or is it that we are now in this economy where um, we don't have the support structure? Well, it's I labor mean, support structure. I mean, it's both. One, one, they need to cr like crack down on how people are actually getting paid out in these situations, um, in terms of like actually applying laws around like wa like wages. But I'm not saying that they necessarily need to be unionized, though a union a unionized structure would help. At this point, Uber is still arguing that they're independent contractors, which in some jurisdictions has found to be false. Um, and so they actually do have an employer-employee relationship, meaning they do have to pay them at least minimum wage. And but some they are unionizing. And some are to trying to unionize, so that's very hopeful. Um, but anyway, so it's just like as more and more of these sort of sharing economy apps pop up, um, I think we still have to keep challenging like how they ex like how they exist and what the structures that allow them to exist are um, and what they actually do for workers. The other thing I found interesting about the article about the empowering women piece, it's like I really like that it forces us to address that even in North America, driving is a masculine uh, in like male driven industry. It's really funny. People get so like 
agitated about how, you know, women don't drive in some countries like in Saudi Arabia until recently and act like it's like this huge difference. But I've only ever had like maybe two women Uber drivers or cab drivers or whatever my entire life. Um, so there is still like that gender divide here. So it's kind of cool that they're addressing that as well. My thing is that I'm not sure that we can go back to the um, the the sort of social contract type of relationship between management and labor. And so if we can't do that, how do we sort of plug in the holes? And I guess when it comes to these ride-sharing apps and these ride-sharing companies and companies like this, my question is... How do we kind of structure the payoff model to reflect the fact that the producer model has changed so drastically? Well, someone's profiting, so yeah, but they should I, be constrained I, again, in like, how much they profit against fo- like. And again, it's looking at their relationship. Are these people actually in, in, like independent of Uber? But I don't think it's they're it's, not. I don't think it's necessarily just about constraining the profit. I think it's about it's about changing the mechanism that pays. Yeah, potentially for sure. But it's also no, but like, I, yeah. like I like to me that's the main issue because if you don't change that mechanism, all you're doing is you're going to create a sort of um, you're going to create pressure on both sides, right? And so I think if we look at the way these new sort of companies are structured, how their how their profit model is structured and how their pay is structured, like I think that's the model that you have to sort of manipulate to to get better payoffs on the labor yeah. side. I mean I don't disagree. The problem is Uber also considers itself a corporation in a traditional sense. And they have you know upper management that profits from whatever the income generated from them like selling rides and instead of and then they've contracted out their employees who do the actual driving that's how they've conceptualized it so they've distanced them distanced themselves from having any um relationship to paying those people out properly they they're they're subcontractors in their minds so they're actually using an old model of like that many corporations do use to avoid paying their employees properly but that's my no no point. i agree yeah. i agree so i think like uh, so a better model maybe it's maybe in your mind it's not unionization but maybe it's like worker owned model where it everyone could be. Could be everyone who's a, a member of uber it could be more as of a, a driver model, yeah right? totally i yeah. mean it like i'm yeah. i'm just saying that yeah that we're not like i i would like to kind of kind of steer the conversation that way or else we're going to keep coming up with this this kind of issue. Yeah, I, d- I don't disagree. Time. My issue yeah. is that Uber thinks they're innovative and they act like they've created this like new mm-hmm. thing when actually they're just exploiting workers in a tried and true method that like you know um, like in like so other con- industries do it too. Like so they're brick consistent and mortar with the history for sure. I mean okay. brick brick and mortar. Um, you know, factories do the same thing. They contract out to people through these weird temp agencies 
um, there was that, that big SAR expose and now they're bringing in legislation to cr crack down on temp agencies. But that idea of like, we don't, they're not really our employees. So we don't have to pay them. We don't owe them benefits. We don't care about workers comp. We don't pay out like for all that stuff that they're doing that same thing. So it's not just, but they, but they tout themselves as being this innovative app. They're part of this new thing. They call it the sharing economy. They trade on this idea that, you know, they're actually adding social value when they're really not. Yeah, and I think this is really important. Like, this whole drive her thing is important given the number of taxi-related assaults that have been in the news over mm -hmm. the past several months in Canada. You know, the one in Halifax. Yeah, so the, uh, there were a couple in Toronto with the, like, or the, it's also the people faking, pretending mm -hmm. that they're an Uber driver and picking up folks who were yeah, like, drunk Ottawa, and leaving bars. Yeah, that was in Ottawa, and there was one in Toronto similar to that. So it's like... People taking, or men specifically, I shouldn't even say people, men taking advantage of um, women who are relying on these car services to get them home safely. Um, yeah, it's really sad. Yeah, so uh, if you live in Toronto and you use DriveHer, let us know how it is. They're definitely interested to figure out what makes it special from a user perspective. Our next topic is about Queen Rihanna. <laughs> All hail. <laughs> So uh, I don't know if you two are still using Snapchat. I ne almost never open it anymore. Yeah, I haven't opened it in weeks. I deleted it months ago. I was like, this is dumb. I talk to the same people that I have on Instagram that I can just send things to. Which, which is really funny because when Instagram started doing things that Snapchat does, like stories and like messaging or whatever, I was like, oh my God, they're trying to be Snapchat. Mm -hmm. That's so lame. Snapchat is so amazing. You can't possibly get better than the Snapchat filters. And I never open Snapchat anymore. No, it's just more yeah. convenient to have it all in one place. Yeah, it really is. Anyway, so um, for our listeners who still use Snapchat, you may have seen an ad uh, last weekend that made light of domestic violence. The ad, which was for a smartphone game called Would You Rather, which because apparently it's 2012, um, appeared inside Snapchat asking users if they would rather slap Rihanna or punch Chris Brown. Snapchat users caught the thinly veiled reference to the infamous 2009 incident when Chris Brown violently assaulted his then girlfriend Rihanna. Brown had choked, bit, and punched Rihanna and threatened to kill her, landing her in the hospital. Many on social media have called out Snapchat for making an advertisement out of a terrible incident. Chelsea Clinton even chimed in and said, it's awful that any company would approve this. Snapchat has since apologized and pulled the ad as, er as late as Monday, saying in a statement, quote, the advert was reviewed and approved in error as it violates our advertising guidelines. Rihanna declined to accept the platform's apology for mistakenly placing the ad after a vetting process, saying, quote, I'd love to call it ignorance, but I know you ain't that dumb. Snapchat has responded to Rihanna's Instagram story, which is where she had posted a statement regarding the incident. And in a statement to the website The Verge, Snapchat said, quote, this advertisement is disgusting and never should have appeared on our service. We are so sorry we made the terrible mistake of allowing it through our review process. We are investigating how that happened so we can make sure it never happens again, end quote. So Rihanna's full statement on Instagram read, quote, now Snapchat, I know you already know you ain't my fave app out there, but I'm just trying to figure out what the point with 
was with this mess. I'd love to call it ignorance, but I know you ain't that dumb. You spent money to animate something that would intentionally bring shame to domestic violence victims and made a joke of it. This isn't about my personal feelings because I don't have much of them, but all the women, children, and men that have been victims of domestic violence in the past, and especially the ones who haven't made it out yet, you let us down. Shame on you. Throw the whole app-ology away. I guess my biggest question is, how is it uh, reviewed and approved in error? There's, I don't know how they, like, let that get through. It just doesn't make any sense. Probably because it wasn't done by a human. I mean, it's it's possible, but then it's, it. I mean, there's that's still inexcusable because they, whenever it suits them, they tout that they have these, like, community standards that they apply, uh, but then, like, don't actually but apply the them to themselves. But that's the problem with a lot of these apps. No, no, that, I agree, is yeah. that they don't have a human... They that, use an AI. Yeah, they use yeah. an AI, you know, and it reduces their labor costs, mm -hmm. right? And so they can profit and mm -hmm. make money for their shareholders, right? <laughs> <laughs> so, yes. Um, I think this is one of the issues why Facebook, Twitter, and Snapchat get into trouble with these atrocious ads. I, was, I saw something in The Guardian or something the other day about AI becoming more and more misogynistic and racist mm -hmm. and homophobic and stuff. Mm. Yeah. And, um, and I, you know, it's only as good as the input. Yeah, absolutely. Right? Yeah. So I'm not surprised that this happened. Um, I will put it this way. This is the second time the Snapchat has lost significant value from a woman tweeting them out. Or, or calling them out. Mm -hmm. and Yeah, the first was Kylie Jenner. The first was Kylie Jenner. And it just goes to show how female-dominated social media is mm -hmm. and how um, a lot of the movements that we're seeing that started on social media have been started by women and have caught on to, caught on to by women. And that as a community of women, we can actually do things like bring attention to these issues and to companies that decide to um, just forego whatever process of checks and balances that they should have in these in these and it, it opens up a larger discussion on domestic violence so that's my piece mm -hmm. <laughs> it made me think of um, that Twitter ad campaign that started running um, yes I saw that where they're like, here are all these amazing women, and like Twitter's like here for her or something. Yeah. I don't remember what yeah. the tagline was, um, but it was like RIP their mentions. Yeah, yeah, I mean it was, and it was kind of disappointing because there were a lot of actual, like legit awesome people who participated in that campaign. Yeah. But they do nothing for getting trash off their site, like people sending harassing um, messages, um, death threats, sending, mm -hmm. um, you know, I mean. So I mean I don't know I don't know what their mechanism is. You're right; they're probably just protecting a bottom line of having wanting to avoid hiring people to actually do that work in any meaningful way, and are probably just tampering with the algorithm that determines what is or isn't offensive. But I mean, it's offensive to me that they say they have this um, standard, like ethics and standards policy and guidelines of of behavior, but then don't actually apply it. I th uh, I think that ad campaign ran on an International Women's Day. Mm -hmm. And I saw it, and I thought it was just the most hypocritical piece of advertising that I had seen in a while. 
I was like, and then I'm like, isn't Twitter self-aware? Like, no, I don't think like none of the so big social media giants are self-aware. That's the problem. They just, I don't know. They just don't have any person advising them to be like, oh, um, you've received criticism on X. You probably shouldn't do Y. Like there just seems to be no critical thought in how they roll out any sort of marketing campaigns or try to promote themselves. It's insane. It's just ridiculous. And it's very careless. And they can say, Twitter can say that they support women all that they want. But until they put their money where their mouth is, it's just all talk. Well, everybody's jumping on the women bandwagon. Yeah. That's what's happening. Yep. You Absolutely. Know. Uh, now they have, what, femvertising, which is... Uh, I hate the portmanteaus we're yes, trying to like make yes. women and sh- like pro- any sort of like female pronoun, you know, femme, whatever. Benefer- oh. Oh yes. It's awful. I, I'm I'm pretty sure that Benefer was the precursor to the trending hashtag. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But yeah, the this femvertising is basically advertising to women. It seem it's it's condescending. I I find that advertisements in s- the social media space can be quite actually in any space to women is usually quite condescending, mm. and um, it assumes certain female feminine tropes that we all grew up with that we're not really. Yeah like about like but so how do we keep participating on these platforms so just to bring it back to the twitter mm-hmm. thing the campaign was hashtag here we are and it had um aired they had a tv slot that aired during the oscars so i don't know if i that's the first time i saw it and then i hopped on twitter and was like what the fuck mm-hmm. and i had a bunch of prominent people including like ava duvernay and other like folks that we all like love and so I don't know why people chose to participate in that campaign, how they managed to recruit people. My other issue is um, I think whereas we can all leave Snapchat, and I think we've all already done that because of they become obsolete. Like, But I don't know that we can all leave Twitter, and I think Twitter trades on that. They know that activists won't leave Twitter. They're, you know what I mean? And we'll continue to be there. Feminist Twitter is really active. Black Twitter is really active. Like, It's not... And there's no clear alternative to that kind of community. Yeah, and I think that's one of the unique things about Twitter is that on like the premise of Twitter, they got right. Oh, right, totally. out of, right out of yeah. the gate. When I first used Twitter, you remember that earthquake years and years ago? Yes. Yeah. The one here in Ottawa. Yeah, yeah, yeah I, I think I it was like 2011 or something. And I think it was 2010. It could, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah, you're right. It was 2010. And um, I remember opening Twitter and all of a sudden you got all these updates, Mm -hmm. all these updates. Mm -hmm. And what happened where what the magnitude was, you saw pictures, you saw and this instantaneous information flow just blew my friggin mind. And I think ever since then, that's why Twitter is my favorite platform. Mm -hmm. It's my I, I love Twitter. It's life to me. For but sure. I agree with you. Twitter is, I, I, I'm also like, eh, you're problematic. Mm-hmm. Uh, at the same time, you also allow all this abuse to take place. So does, I, I just, I, I don't know where the sort of 
equilibrium is, is what I'm saying. I, I, I really mm-hmm. don't know. Mm-hmm. And I'm not sure how to conceptualize what that would be like. Yeah, and you still have to be able to access folks. Like, so we could have our own alternative platforms and people have tried that, but then there's no one there or you're speaking to the same people. And what's great about Twitter, although some you know, some people may argue otherwise, I actually think it's the closest platform that gets you talking to people outside of your echo chamber. Um as compared to m- Facebook, certainly, I think the Facebook uh, Facebook definitely um, limits what you see and limits who you're speaking to. Um, so there, there's a huge value in that. But then, do we have do we have power to democratize Twitter or to like get the results we want from the people who run it? And I don't I don't know that they're responsive to us. And they they do pick like they kick people off their platforms all the time whenever alt writers complain about getting doxxed on Twitter. <laughs> they're like quick to like boot those people. But for some reason they're not responsive as like Yeah, I don't know. I I can't imagine what it would what it's like to be either someone some a woman with some sort of like larger platform on Twitter, yeah. you know? I, yeah. I can't. Your mentions must be a wreck all the time. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. many people you see, like women you see on Twitter just being like, I just don't read them. Yeah. But I mean, in fairness, like when you ha- are verified, you only get, you can make it so you only get notifications when other verified people comment, like reply to you. Oh. But I mean, but that's like also shitty because then you don't. Necessary, then you have to go looking for folks who did respond to you in a positive way. Like, it's yeah. that's not great either. Yeah. You know, and that shouldn't be the answer. Sure. Yeah. A- absolutely. But, but yeah. yeah, point well taken. Um, so our last topic for This Week in Feminism is a topic that we've avoided so far. Um, it kind of came into the media, it left, and it's now back, and I don't know that it really shows any sign of going away. So I think it's kind of reached a point where we do have to talk about it because I think the coverage of it is making us kind of a bit uncomfortable. And that is Stormy Daniels. Um, So we're not going to get into the details of what happened with regards to her relationship with Donald Trump. Instead, we're going to talk about how she deserves to be treated better. Um, Jill Filipovic wrote an op-ed for CNN and I just going to read an excerpt from that. What's different here is the systematic silencing of women. Non-disclosure agreements are too often leveraged against people who have little ability to refuse to sign them, often employees trying to settle sexual harassment complaints, for example. They paper over serious problems and allow harassers and abusers to behave with impunity. In Trump's case, the problem is less the affair allegations than the allegations of hush money and threats to keep a woman quiet. There's also the treatment of Daniels by the Trump team and the media who are trying to undermine her credibility by casting her as an attention-hungry porn star who will do just about anything for the right price. Imagine the same scenario with a woman who was an office manager. Say this imaginary woman and a high official in government allegedly have an affair. She definitely gets a six-figure check from his lawyer, and even though that same lawyer carefully asserts that his client denies the affair, the lawyer confirms the existence of a non-disclosure agreement between them. This would all point to one fairly obvious conclusion. Would we be so quick to doubt Daniels and so hasty to make her the butt of a joke if she had a different job? 
Getting paid to engage in consensual sexual acts on camera doesn't make one a liar or an irredeemably immoral person. It makes one a person who hasn't gotten who has gotten paid to engage in consensual sexual acts on camera. The real story is not the affair. It is an attempt to shut her up and then to trash her when she refuses to stay quiet. We shouldn't let the, his team get away with that. Daniels deserves to be given a fair hearing, regardless of whether one thinks her occupation makes her a bad woman, which it doesn't. Totally agree with that. I've been cringing like, for the last couple months since this story broke, um, just hearing people talk about it. Um, like, you know, just just even the language people use talking, like, you know, a, like referring to her as a prostitute and all of this stuff and like, like, and it's just like, I think it's really, um, I had, I'm, I guess I was naive. I thought we would like progress a lot further, at least in, in its progressive people that I'm referring to when we're like, okay, like either she, like, first of all, she's a porn star. She's a celebrity of sorts. She has legitimacy in so many ways in that like that's a chosen profession that many people choose to engage in and as a consumer. Um, but from her, it dehumanizes her, which is total nonsense. And even if she is a sex worker, yeah, I, like that's also a legitimate form of work. And yet we're so like, we speak of it as if like, yeah, com like a completely lower class, like, person that's that not worth the time again yeah question calls into question her credibility um and yet these are some of the same people that you heard who were all for changing sex work laws or, or tried to sound progressive at one point but now we're turning around and and still use it as like a punchline and a joke to say that she's like um a prostitute kind of and it's just like no like you choose your language that's really gross and also like it's not about her and the act it is about him, the power dynamic, the payoff, all of that stuff, which is shady, and he's shady for it, and he's shady for a lot of other things, and he's not shady for for engaging in sex outside marriage, or and he's not shady for or like outside of his marriage, uh, like as an affair, and he's not, and it's not even if he had paid her for like paid to have sex with her, that's not shady either, because you can't be for sex work and then say you don't have people don't have the ability to buy it. The two go hand in hand, but it's all of this other stuff. And people take the cheapest jabs at Donald Trump too. Like, just like, just don't. Just there's so, so many intelligent things you can critique about him, like from a place of intelligence rather. You don't need to make these like weird punchlines about how he isn't, like pays for sex or that engages with porn stars or whatever. That's, that's, not, that's not interesting or funny. I've tried to ignore this story on purpose. There's only so much I can, you know, absorb. <laughs> you know what I mean? So I tried. I tried. When it comes on my timeline, I'm just like, oh, gosh. <laughs> because, frankly, I, I'm like, I, I, think it's, I think it's distracting. I think it's a distracting story in the sense that, like, I – it's like you said, Amy, there's so many like other things. There's so many like fundamental to democracy things that are happening that I want to pay attention to those. However, here we are. Um, but some of these things are like, I think what Amy was saying is that some of the nuances related to this story are fundamental to democracy. Yeah, the fact well, that you have... I'm, now I'm paying attention. No, <laughs> but the fact that you have a lawyer out there who's working for you, who's essentially like your own personal like hitman of sorts, paying people off but, during an election. But this and is the thing. Like, I'm not 
A, I'm not surprised. And and it's not me like condoning it. It's just that again, I only have like so yeah. much brain space. So like to me, like it's 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 one of those again Trump cyclone stories that is happening parallel to the absolute dismantling of Obama era toward sort of uh, his legacy that actually hits poor people, that actually hits marginalized people, and stuff like that. However, here we are. Now, I do think, like, the non-disclosure agreement, and I think that's what I took from this story, is not only the way that she was being treated, which, unfortunately, I'm not surprised. I, don't, I just don't think we've progressed that far and that much. And maybe in our circles we have, but I don't think the rest of society has. Right. I think the rest of society still sees a whore as a whore. Well, my point and is actually even in our circles, people still speak like that. Okay, yeah. well, yeah. which just yeah, underlines my fucked. point, yeah. right? But at the same time, what I find interesting is, um, number one, money doesn't always buy power and respectability is still a thing. And a woman has to has to overplay respectability to be even taken seriously because he doesn't, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, but, and, but I really like what this author said about non-disclosure agreements and how non-disclosure agreements are basically uh, the weapon of the rich and powerful to silence the people that they, um, that they, that they hurt physically, emotionally, mentally, whatever, and to carry on this behavior. It's almost like a mechanism for them to just behave with impunity. And it's also legally binding. So it's the manipulation of the law, too, to protect the rich and powerful against any transgressions against people who are poorer than them and have less power than them. And I think that's a really dis- good discussion for us to have. Yeah, I think that there, the, this was a really interesting op-ed, and I think that there is a lot to take into consideration around this situation. Um, when I was on News 1310 yesterday, one of the things we briefly discussed was whether or not the upcoming Stormy Daniels interview mm-hmm. would, quote, take down the president. And I don't think that that's the case at all. I think no. that... If he wants to have an affair, that's frankly none of my business. Um, People can do whatever they want in their own relationships. I think he's going to play this up, by the way. I think he's going to, I think it's all going to be about Stormy Daniels around that interview, after that interview, because to be honest, the Mueller investigation just indicted his Trump court, right? Uh, They're investigating. Sorry, they opened an investigation to Trump court. Yeah. So, um, so this is a this is he's I'm pretty sure he's okay with um with with that going on because it's gonna distract from all of that. Uh yes, but I, I think that more the, the more the bigger danger for the administration is all of the other dealings related to this issue. Um the threats that she's faced because of the power dynamic um, the, the it's the money, it's one hundred and thirty thousand too. She just had threats against her yesterday. Yeah, like so. No, I'm just yeah. saying, like from like an investigative standpoint. Sure. Yeah. Um, 
that money trail is quite damning, mm-hmm. to, in my opinion. Um, but I also, I, I, getting to kind of what Amy was saying, like in progressive circles and even in non-progressive circles, just the, I, I still find it hard to believe that we just can't believe that women engaged in sex work, particularly in the porn industry, mm-hmm don't necessarily have their own agency and haven't made a conscious decision to do that. Like, obviously there are situations where they haven't. Yeah. And that's what, that's some of the, sometimes mm-hmm. the only option that women are faced with. Um, but a lot of them choose to do it for whatever reason. And that's fine. And I was on the radio yesterday with someone who was just like, yeah, like she's just some porn star. And I'm like, well, no, but she's also like a person. Mm-hmm. And her name is actually Stephanie Clifford. Mm-hmm. And she's more than just like this persona. And mm-hmm. I think that the media needs to kind of refer to her in a much more respectful manner. Mm-hmm. Also, um, it's just hypocritical that people consume porn at like ridiculous rates and then turn around and have no respect for the women doing that work. Like, but I the- bet you the person who made that comment on News Talk watches porn. It was a woman. Whatever. She probably watches porn. I don't care. She probably watches porn. Right? Like, and then there's no respect for the people doing that work. But isn't that why he chose her? Uh, Because she's easy to discredit. I mean, maybe, but I mean, he's not like he has a, I don't think that's, he has a track record of dating and marrying women who are particularly smart and powerful. And then Ivana, when she did become, a little bit of uh, wanting a little bit more power and, you know, cachet, that's when they kind of fell apart. Mm-hmm. Well, exactly, but that's my point, is yeah. that he chooses women who he I can see. easily discredit so that so that they're disposable enough for him to throw away I think he's on. just. I think it's just a vanity thing. Like, I think that's what he... He is like a, you know, corporate Hugh Hefner. Like, that's how he sees himself. He's always been surrounded by models and entertainers and he's like part of that culture listen to this um if trump did cheat this is from the article if trump did cheat on his wife it would not come as much of a surprise given his history he cheated on his first wife with the second and then fed the story to the new york tabloids to humiliate her yeah classic that's That's no but that's just what i'm saying yeah is that once he's done and she's no longer, um, it's like it's like owning a pet, right? Once once he's done and 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 she can't, I don't know, bring us fetch his slippers or whatever, or she doesn't want to. Um, he he's like, well, whatever. Like, I can I can find another one. You're disposable. And by the way, I will discredit you so you can't get anything from me. Anyway, um, I guess my biggest kind of takeaway on this is just view sex workers as human beings and don't disparage them. Mm -hmm. Now we're on to rent and receipts. This is where we each bring a story to share with the others. I think I'm going up first this week. Let's do it. We were all introduced to the idea of inclusion writers at the Oscars a couple weeks ago. Thanks to Frances McDormand who me- for mentioning them in her Best Actress acceptance speech. Um, but for those of us who don't know what an inclusion writer is, 
They are a clause that an actor can insist be inserted into their contract that requires cast and crew on a film to meet a certain level of diversity. Uh, this could include um, things such as screen actors, people behind the camera, mm. just general, any sort of general cast and crew, um, specifying targets for underrepresented groups like women, people of color, LGBTQ individuals, and people with disabilities. Very awesome. So Paul Feig, uh, the director of Bridesmaids and Ghostbusters, or the Ghostbusters remake, not the original, which was the goat, mm -hmm. um, said, quote, it's not that hard to do. It's just common sense. I feel like the people who don't do it now and the studios and companies that don't do it now are moving backwards and not forwards. So he is committed to using inclusion writers for all of his movies going forward. Um, actors Brie Larson and Michael B. Jordan Swoon. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Seriously. Uh, we're the first to declare following the Oscars their support for inclusion writers. And Pearl Street Films, the production company founded by Ben Affleck and Matt Damon, have also pledged their its commitment to using inclusion writers in its movies going forward. However, uh, both neither Ben Affleck nor Matt Damon have said whether or not they plan to use inclusion writers when appearing in films outside their production company. Mm. I mean, it's, it's important. So there's two things. One is it's important for these A-list people to start doing this so that it becomes the norm in the industry. But it's also a little bit shady that neither of these two very prominent actors with a lot of clout mm -hmm. um, have committed to doing it in all of their productions. Well, I just love that it's um, like black people, racialized people, women who are the ones who are coming out. I mean, aside from Paul Feig, who's great, are coming out saying that they support inclusion yeah. riders. They're putting inclusion riders, uh, uh, riders in their contracts. They probably already look for talent like that. Yeah. They agree to production, like to to work on projects that are already inclusive. They're the last people who need this. Who are stepping out and, and supporting it, which is great because it sets a tone. And then you have folks who only appear in white cast films, <laughs> like, like Ben and Matt. Who are <laughs> come on, good for their production company, but I don't know how much involvement they have in day to day operations anyway. Like. Their clout is in their name it and what they bring to a film. Exactly. Like, yeah. I didn't even know they had a production company, to be honest. <laughs> I know Erica's, Erica's got a feelings <laughs> right here. Ben Affleck and Matt Damon are just garbage. They're playing both sides of the coin, right? Like, they're like, oh, like, look, we're being so inclusive on, like, things that we're not going to be in but that we kind of pay for, but on our own creative uh, endeavors, we're not really going to do it because we only do things that are about Boston and we know how Boston feels about racialized people and, you know. <laughs> yeah, they have a reputation. <laughs> and it ain't good. They it's only, like Quebec. Yeah. <laughs> the only good thing to come out of Matt and Ben is Mindy Kaling because she rose to popularity doing a uh, play, a fringe play essentially mocking Matt and Ben, which played by her and her best friend. That's the And that genius <laughs> from Goodwill Hunting was a black guy in real life. I'm just saying. That's so fucked. Okay. <laughs> <laughs>
So if he wants to do something for people of color, he should pay that guy. <laughs> Matt Damon. Matt Damon needs to keep his mouth shut and his checkbook open. <laughs> okay, so Katy Perry kissed a boy and he didn't like it. So Benjamin Glaze, last year on American Idol, he auditioned when he was, ni- he was 19 years old. And um, he ended up getting a surprise kiss on the lips from Katy Perry. So the footage of that kiss, uh, which was Glaze's first kiss ever, um, aired this week when the rebooted American Idol premiered Monday on ABC. Glaze told the New York Times the experience left him feeling, quote, uncomfortable. I wanted to save my first kiss for my first relationship, he said. I wanted it to be special. Glaze was hoping for a shot at superstardom, and at his audition, Judge Luke Bryan jokingly asked him a question. Have you quizzed a girl and liked it, Bryan said, playing off the lyrics of of Katy Perry's hit song, I Kissed a Girl? The cashier from Enid, Oklahoma, revealed that he had never been in a relationship and said, I can't kiss a girl without being in a relationship. Perry beckoned Glaze over for what he thought would be a kiss on the cheek, but the pop star, Katy Perry, turned her head at the last minute and laid one on the lips instead. So basically what he said was, I know a lot of guys would be like, heck yeah, but for me I was raised in a conservative family. And I was uncomfortable immediately. I wanted my first kiss to be special. So, what do you think of that? So we talked about this on the radio again yesterday. Oh, did you? Yeah, yeah we got scooped by the fucking AM radio station. <laughs> what the heck? Um, yeah, I think that... What was, okay, so what was their approach to it? It was just like, do you think it was appropriate? It was a question. Oh, and okay. I said it wasn't. Um, and I use the example that there is a double standard, I think, um, when talking about assault. Well, no, sorry. Let me start again. I think that there is a double standard, um, and people have been like, oh, like, it's so cute. And like, oh, she's just like, oh, he's like so cute and like innocent. Let's just like give him a little kiss, whatever. Um, meanwhile, if it was... Luke Bryan doing it to a young girl, people would be outraged. Fine. I get that. That that is a belief that people have. Um, the belief th- in the double standard? Yes. Some people have that double standard. And I know that those people exist. Um, but I but think that, that person's not you. The, correct. Okay. Um, and then I, I likened it to the fact that we always have this double standard and I use the example of age differences in relationships uh, because the age difference between Jay-Z and Beyonce is very significant. Yeah. And no one talks about it and no one thinks that it's a little alarming. It's not alarming because now that they've been together for so long and whatever, but the fact of the matter is he's 50, right? And she's 38-ish. 35, 36? I'm going to look it up. (laughs) Regardless. Yeah, yeah. She's in her mid to late 30s. And right, he's right, 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 right. He's 48. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, but meanwhile, when you had Ashton Kutcher and Demi Moore, mm. she was given so much criticism for being so much older than him. 
True. And it's okay for a man to date a younger woman, but it's not okay for a woman to date a younger man. And that's the kind of what we're seeing here where it's not okay for a man to do that to a woman, but it's okay for a woman. And I said this personally, I disagree with that. I think that it's inappropriate because what it comes down to in any sort of kind of assault or harassment is power. And she is the one in the power position here and taking advantage of him being young, being inexperienced and being um, wanting to get into the industry in which she in this instance is a gatekeeper and that we need to talk about it not being men versus women it's about power and basically not much else um and so i think that's a great point i think once you look at these um instances through that lens then the men versus women women versus men gender or or you know, conversation, extra conversations about sexism, about, about, you know, the differences between men and women or whatever, whatever, whatever conversation veers off that topic. Um, I think I was talking last week about the um, uh, Parliament Hill and somebody said, somebody said in the, in the McLean's article that we referenced that it's, a moral issue and I said no it's a power issue mm-hmm. and I think once we start looking at it through that lens then we can actually come to a more sort of um, view of the situation through equanimity yeah and I think that you know in the era of the me too and times up movements um, the backlash is that oh well you wouldn't be saying this about a woman um, you would let the women get off with the behavior towards a man. And I don't think that that's the case. And I think this is a good example of that not being the case and the backlash that she's received. Mm-hmm. And so it kind of can, you can kind of point to it when people are trying to dispute that it's a witch hunt for men. Mm-hmm. Well, I love when people like treated that as like a big gotcha moment, like, aha, look, women do it too. And you're like, yeah, yeah, we know we've been saying that. It's just that disproportionately men are the aggressors because of the power dynamics that are more often than not gendered, but not always. Um, And I think the other interesting aspect of gender that plays into this is of course the idea that like men should desire to be like, uh, like, or have this like hypersexuality or whatever. um, And therefore would welcome being kissed by someone like Katy Perry instead of like having boundaries and maybe wanting to not engage. Right. Um, And so men as victims of that kind of like, um, toxic masculinity attitude um, yeah. that also feeds into rape culture. And, you know, for all that we know, like growing up in a conservative environment, it's entirely possible that he could be a very closeted gay boy. Like, we don't know. We have no idea. Yeah, or just like, or, I mean, he's he's facing clearly a lot of expectations around what it is to be a man and yeah. how to express that. Um, and there's definitely like attitudes like this that like, you know, by the show and by Katy Perry definitely, um, exasperate that. Yeah. Yeah. I thought this was an interesting, um, piece to talk about just exactly because of those dynamics that you so well articulated, Aaron. And also, um, Katy Perry, it's very interesting, especially by Katy Perry, because Katy Perry has um, proclaimed herself and branded herself 
as a feminist, as somewhat woke, as, as somebody who pays attention to these kinds of things. So I think, especially for P Katy Perry to um, sort of be, like, exhibit this kind of impropriety is notable. Yeah, and it's really weird because she herself came from a very religious, conservative, conservative religious. household, yes. Yeah, so I, to the fact that she just didn't have any respect for his own beliefs and, like, not wanting to have his first kiss, kiss with, one, a stranger, and two, outside of a relationship is yeah. kind of... I don't know. A lot of her music and behavior has always been exploitative, though, in different ways. And this is just another example yep. of that. Like, even the original song, I Kissed a Girl and I Liked It, like, stepping into this, like, queer space and trying to, like, you oh, know, for sure. like, claim it. Whatever song, You're So um, Gay. Yeah, play, You're So Gay and, and whatever. Of There's a few music, of them yeah. like that from that era. Yeah. Um, and now, like, in general... Um, her relationship with black culture and, and exploitation there as well. And, it's, and so it doesn't surprise me that she, her view is really self-centric. Um, and yeah, I don't, I don't see this as being any different. Cool. Okay. That's my rent and receipts. <laughs> awesome. So my contribution for this week, um, I'm going to, I guess, read a little bit from the national geographics, um, uh, editors note in this uh, in April's edition, which is called the race issue. Um, so f uh, titled for decades, our coverage was racist to rise above our past. We must acknowledge it. And so the National Geographic magazine's editor in chief writes, I'm the 10th editor of National Geographic since its founding in 1888. I am the first woman and the first Jewish person, a member of two groups that also faced f discrimination here. It hurts to share the appalling stories from the magazine's past, but we, when we decided to devote our April magazine to the topic of race, we thought we should examine our own history before turning our reportorial gaze to others. Race is not a biological um, construct, as writer uh, Elizabeth Colbert explains in the issue, and that's where you get, um, she's speaking here to the article that's the basis of the cover with the uh, fraternal twins um, but a social one that can have devastating effects. So many of the horrors of the past centuries can be traced to the idea that one race is inferior to the other. Racial distinctions continue to shape our politics, neighborhoods, and our sense of self. How we represent race matters. I hear from readers that National Geographic provided their first look at the world. Our explorers, scientists, photographers, and writers have taken people to places they'd never heard, even imagined. It's, tradition, um, it's a tradition that still drives our coverage and of which we're rightly proud. And it means we have a duty in every story. And it means that, um, to represent accurate and authentic depictions, a duty heightened when we cover fraught issues such as race. So essentially the magazine asks um, an academic, John Edwin uh, Mason, to do the examination. He is um, a professor at the University of Virginia, specializing in history of photography and the history of Africa, um, which are frequent crossroads in how National Geographic tells its stories. And so they gave him access to the archives, and he sort of dives in and makes an assessment. And um, what he finds, it, in short, is that until the 1970s, although some of us would argue until quite recently, National Geographic all but ignored people of color who lived in the United States, rarely acknowledging them beyond laborers or domestic workers. 
Meanwhile, it pictured natives, quote-unquote, elsewhere as exotics, famously and frequently unclothed, happy hunters, noble savages, every type of cliché. And so, for example, in covering South Africa in the 60s and 70s, uh, you notice it, he noticed that in reviewing National Geographic's coverage, there were no voices of black South Africans. The absence is as important as what was in there. The only black people are doing exotic dances, servants or workers, which is bizarre, actually, to consider what editors and writers and photographers had to consciously not see. Um, and Goldberg, the editor, uh, does go on to say that if we want to accurately cover a diverse world and, with, and do it with authority, we need diverse staff to cover it, which um, I think is uh, quite noteworthy. Yeah, this has really been really interesting to see this unfold. I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's great that they're owning it and they're opening up and they start from like a, an informed place and I think it's, it's certainly no accident that their editor-in-chief is um, someone who is a, like their first woman, first Jewish person to edit the paper um, or the magazine. Um, it To me, what strikes me is I don't know how I don't, I don't know who still reads National Geographic. I think it's a readership is probably still from folks who are looking from a voyeuristic standpoint mm -hmm. at these issues and parts of the world. Um, and it's a membership-driven, or at least it was, a National Geographic Society for a long time. And until, um, you know, midway through the last century, membership was limited to white people and for a period of time to white men. Um, so it, it is an institution that is sort of catered to colonizers, observing the colonized. Um, and so it's not to devalue like the, the work that Goldberg is doing or that the magazine is doing now, but I think um, it's interesting to think about what place should National Geographic have um, and, and can it be propped up or is there a space for us to probably better to support alternative uh, spaces and vehicles for that kind of coverage. So I'll give you uh, something to, to ponder, Erica, I hear your deep sighing. So for example, <laughs> on the cover of the so-called race issue for April, they have these two um, fraternal twins, uh, British twins, who want, uh, have a, a British white mother and a black um, British Jamaican father. And so one twin is uh, fair skin, like white, blonde hair, and the sister has um, darker skin, dark hair, darker features and on it it says black and white race um you know race like deconstructing race or race isn't like what we thought it was um and so it's interesting like because they have done a lot of coverage around the idea that in in recent years national geographic has and many publications have this fascination with mixed race people um, and this idea that like race isn't a construct because look at how we meld kind of, as opposed to like race isn't a construct or race is a construct because we like have these perverse power dynamics that like project that onto people or that they're folks of different like shade like whether looking at shadism colorism within different communities to address like how, like as a way to deconstruct what we think of race and racism. Um, so it's weird, like they were just kind of falling back on that same idea of color and race presenting um, in a particular way as a way to address it. So that kind of made me feel a little uneasy. They don't, they don't have the personnel to deal with this issue in a constructive mm -hmm. manner. 
I mean, I I read part of that. Um, I read part of the twins, and I read part of the, and I read the your rent and receipts, and I I I just I thought it was a very it, it was just a very basic laying out of oh we were racist once, isn't it appalling what we did? Oh my gosh, that is just so awful. <laughs> oh, now that we're becoming increasingly irrelevant in this new <laughs> space. Oh, let's get let's talk about the biggest one of the biggest most most politically and socially fraught issues of our time, <laughs> race. Oh, okay. Well, and and then they go on and they basically they basically whitewash the political um, machinations and social um, and social nuances of race because they don't know how to deal with it, and it's not like. When I saw those two girls on the cover, I'd seen coverage of them before. Mm-hmm. They became popular a few years ago. And yeah. yeah covered and in I the was Daily just Mail. like, snore. Okay. And I said snore because my parents are from the West Indies. Mm-hmm. They're from a place where everybody mixes. Mm-hmm. So in one family, yeah. you can have a dark-skinned kid and a light-skinned kid. And then they say, so it's like nothing. Like it's, it wasn't like a big deal to Which me. Which is why that's such a white perspective, to be shocked that's by that. That's my point. Yeah. Yeah. This is my point. This totally. is This is continuing in their tradition of the white gaze on these issues. This is a big white gaze looking at race instead of being informed about race by people who are racialized. And that's the entire problem. So it reads to me as somebody who's racialized and has, wow, lived experience. And (laughs) nice try, but she's a Jewish woman. And at nice try. I'm sure she passes as white. Okay, mm. nice fucking try. And anyway, I digress. Um, but at the same time, I mean, I I just I don't. I, I think they think that just because they considered um, a professor on race who happens to be black that they've done their checkbox. That's really what it is. This is not like mm-hmm. a collaboration of e- an exploration about race, and that has always been the problem with National Geographic. It's also not new. The Atlantic, yeah. All of these, pl- all of these sort of of let's let's use our white perspective to talk about something that is not whose effects aren't felt by us. Mm-hmm. I don't know That's how it took problem. them so long to own this because it's a running joke. I mean, people have constantly commented on National Geographic's um, c- crude, voyeuristic, if not like deeply offensive, I racist, colonial nature. It's I not agree. a revelation. This and is not acting, a revelation. Yes, they're acting right. as if they stumbled on I this know. huge thing. <laughs> they and did, like, they totally Columbus st- the racist. Yeah. <laughs> But, like, we did studies, and we got this expert. It's like, we didn't really need an expert to tell you that. Like, (laughs) anyone can look at your magazine and, like, come to that conclusion. It's not, you know. Their magazine was made for the 1930s explorer who went to the North Pole and discovered something. Yeah, for sure. And I use that in quotations. For the colonialists who stumbled into Africa and decided to, quote, unquote, colonize the people there and... And it's just, they, they obviously, like, that's what it stinks of. It stinks of both the, the ignorance of 
of a white power structure vis-a-vis race and they're and even when they talk about their part in it all they talked about were oh well we, this headline looks awful and yeah we you know yeah we, we 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 made them look like savages but we took people all around the world yeah you know no. and it's like no where you took people is to places that were already civilizations that you decided to peer upon mm-hmm. and impose mm-hmm. your idea of what they should be on, and that's what you sold back to everybody else. Well, and, the, and instead, and you're creating, and to go back to the discoverer idea, like the photographers and writers who worked for National Geographic over the last decade and a half are white people. They're not people who are indigenous to the places that they're covering. And it, it almost acts as if there aren't local photographers and there aren't writers and there aren't experts who are writing about the societies that National Geographic then comes in and writes about for its Western audience. And I think that's like that in itself is really harmful. Um, and we're not instead of fostering like the work of other people and maybe like repu- republishing it for a Western audience. Do you know what I mean? Like, um, yeah. so I the product itself and how it's created, um, not just what the substance of it is. It also seems damaging. like they just need to um, have inclusion writers in National mm. Geographic. Just burn it down. We'll create our own thing. Well, like, <laughs> the thing is, is that like, there's no reason why National Geographic shouldn't be selecting local um, writers or photographers to do this work or at least support the work mm-hmm. of the National Geographic staff because one, they provide... I mean, it elevates the voices of likely people of color. Um, it also helps create cachet for people in those local areas, which elevates their voices, which can then helps feed the local economy. Like, there's uh, many other yeah. things that this can do. Yeah. I mean, I don't want to, like, veer off into this other ramp, but, but there is so much, like, theft that has happened. For other like from like from the West of society's histories, artifacts, art that's like been taken and placed in Western museums for well, starters. Well, and art historians, art archivists, like writers, people who've been who've been documenting the work in in those country like in the countries, have lost their lost access to that information, that knowledge, because it's been stolen by white colonizers, and that's really fucked up. Well, think about National Geographic's most iconic cover ever. In, I want to say, like, 1985, 1984-ish, the Afghani woman with the the blue eyes. eyes. Mm -hmm. I mean, how much money did they make off that cover? And then they had the temerity to go back and find her and, and figure out what happened to her. Like fuck you! Mm-hmm. You took her picture. You made you and profited. I, you off profited of off of it, and then you go like it is like that in itself is just colonizing. Like a hundred percent. I like they're so they're so trying to pretend that they're self aware, and maybe they do think that they're being self aware, but they're not really self aware. Yeah. No, the race issue. Like first of all, the race issue. It should be. Uh, they all all magazines call them the race issue. If it's like if you want to do something for like have like have an issue that deals with like particular countries that maybe you feel or, like make it more specific and then have it all be writers like from that place. 
and have, indigenous to that place, writing from that perspective, not like Western and also not like African American black people, like African people writing about and their have, own space. And, and they right? can have a nuanced, really a detailed his and cultural historical discussion mm -hmm. and a well rounded piece. It, there's also this attitude that, you know, I, I, I feel like there's this attitude like, oh, well, oh, the only top writers are Western writers. And mm. Mm, we know that's not true. No. So, I, you know, National Geographic, I feel like this is a fail on so many levels. So many levels. National Geographic, if you're listening, hire us. We'll help you. I say burn it down, but that's <laughs> just me. We'll make a magazine of our own. It's fine. Huh. So, you guys, that does it for this episode. As always, we'd like to thank MediaStyle for letting us use their space. MediaStyle is a progressive public affairs agency located in Ottawa. They are a social enterprise making Canada a better place. Um, any parting words? No. <laughs> <laughs> there was a big struggle there. Yeah, I'm just, sorry, y'all. I'm just really tired today, and I'm just like, I want to take a nap. <laughs> That's fair. Um, don't forget to become a patron. Get cool things. Patreon.com slash badandbitchy. Find us on Twitter at badandbitchy, on Instagram at badandbitchypod, on Facebook.com slash badandbpodcast, and send us things to our email, badandbpod at gmail.com. All right, guys, till next time. Bye. Bye.